following conversation originally aired on The Point on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. Airing weekdays at 9 a.m., The Point is a half-hour locally produced show focusing on people and events in Central Oregon. This is The Point, Central Oregon's premier community affairs program. Rapid-fire weapons may be required in some certain instances. Wars, police work, and apparently mass shootings. But honestly... There are just not many other reasons. We really have to think twice about how many people really need mass-killing machine guns. Since first hearing the idea of having gun owners not only register but carry liability insurance as well, and any gun that was unregistered would be confiscated, it sounded righteous. This would be a free market fix, the ultimate example of a true capitalist fix. Obviously, a 22 single-shot rifle made in the early 1900s would be far less to insure than a modern military-grade assault rifle, just as it is with automobiles, which also have to be registered and insured. A high-performance car, say a Corvette or a Ferrari, would carry a much higher insurance premium than a Toyota Prius. Oh, by the way, it is estimated that there are over 392 million unregistered guns in the U.S., Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Enough of my verbal swill. Our guest for today is a friend who is near and dear to me and to Paula. He's an educator, fantastic musician, neighbor, good Samaritan, friend extraordinaire, and a true brother from another mother, Kevin Hillman. Kevin has the heart-aching experience of witnessing one of the very first school shootings in the U.S. right here in Oregon. As horrifying as these events are, eyewitnessing them leaves scars, sometimes wounds that will never be fully healed. I applaud his courage to speak up and expose his pain. I think you will too. None of us are equipped to handle this sort of catastrophe, and we shouldn't have to be. Sometimes you just can't find fitting words enough to make clear someone's reputation is. That would be the case with our good friend and neighbor and our guest today, Kevin Hillman. Welcome to The Point, Kevin. Thank you, Steve. It's great to have you here. You know, just to get some idea of kind of your inside story, can you briefly fill us in from how a kid from San Francisco ended up working in the Eugene Springfield education system? <laughs> well, you know, being from San Francisco, I got, to, uh, I got to grow up in the greatest movement that probably ever hit our country, uh, you know, the peace and love movement, absolutely. And, you know, one of our personal goals of being <laughs> from that generation is um, to uh, live our life in a more serene and country setting you know so uh you know oregon was the promised land for us this is where a lot of us from the bay area ended up moving it was my goal as well it took me two attempts to get here my first attempt i ended up in burns oregon and it was not quite the paradise that i thought it was going to be so uh moved back to san francisco uh, to the san francisco bay area by then we were living in the suburbs and then the second time seemed to stick as we moved on to Cottage Grove and uh, I found myself in Eugene and Springfield. You know, getting here, I had lots of different jobs. I was kind of a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. I believe that's a saying. You know, I did everything from steel fabrication to uh, a little bit of logging, logging supply work. The job that really stuck with me, because I'm a hands-on person, I uh, found a job in the Springfield School District as a vocational assistant, which is a paraprofessional job. And because I like my hands-on stuff, I was an assistant in metal shop, wood shop, 
So knowing that, and I think it's important to mention that you were in the uh, timber industry, it really did give you some hands-on experience and probably taught you what you didn't want to do. (laughs) (laughs) That it did. That it did. You know, uh, logging was a a short-lived. Getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning during the summer just doesn't cut it for me. But providing um, cable for high-lead logging and setting up high-lead towers was pretty interesting. But again, you're right. It did, after, uh, after two years, I believe, it just was not what I wanted to do. Yeah, I know that there's a lot of kids that are fortunate that that was the case. So, yeah. why don't you explain what you did kind of in your teaching career before we get to the the not-so-pleasant subject? Yeah. Well, you know, um, my, my introduction to the school district was as a vocational assistant. I worked in the machine shop, the uh, metal shop, wood shop, as an assistant to the teacher, and, of course, uh, maintaining equipment and uh, helping students uh, learn their skills, skills that I had some of myself. And through meeting staff members at the school district, I got recommended for a new program to the school district, and it was in the special education field. And um, what it was was working with students with uh, learning disabilities. Well, what I was doing was counseling and referral to outside agencies and job counseling, you know, that kind of work. The grant I worked under was called the Youth Transition Program, which is still in existence today. And I kind of got in on the ground floor, which was a real benefit for my career because I spent the rest of my time at the school district, which was like the next 19 years (laughs) working in that program. Yeah. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about the program. The program, although we serve all students, it is kind of specific to students that are higher functioning, learning disabled, okay? Because these are the students that represent the highest dropout rate. And externally, they, you may think that they're, they're fully functional and there's no problem, but you know, for them internally, they have a disability. And that is the thing that brings on their, their disappointment. Their disappointment in school, their disappointment in work. And like I say, they represent the highest dropout rate. So this program was originally specifically designed, and it still is, to serve that student. Say hooray for public education. It's one of the good things. <laughs> Absolutely. So life was pretty good. You were having, uh, you know, I'm assuming a, a relatively good time teaching school and enjoying your work. And then some happened that changed everything. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, um, it was actually at the beginning of my career at the school district, uh, which brings us to today's subject. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, on the morning of May 21st, 1998, uh, uh, I showed up at school on a, like a regular day and, and, um, my classroom's door was across, just across the hallway from the cafeteria. And as I'm opening my door, I, uh, I've heard what I thought were firecrackers, but I was wrong. They were gunshots. Um, Without getting into all of the mechanics, I found myself as a first responder to a school shooting at Thurston High School. Um, 26 students shot, four, four dead, four killed, two adults, and two students. Um, Pretty sobering. Very sobering, very sobering, and uh, you know, uh, it's it's really hard to respond to, to even think about it, and so that's why I'm kind of stuttering here. But uh, the horror, the terror of being 
in a cafeteria with 26 gunshot students is uh, something that uh, it will stick with you for the rest of your life. And I think most veterans know what kind of what that is like, although they may not have dealt with students. After, uh, after this incident took place, of course, the doors to the cafeteria are locked, are closed and locked. And there was, uh, I think, probably five or six staff members still in the cafeteria. And that's, that is the horror of it all. Because not knowing, is there another shooter? Yeah, a host of unknowns, for uh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, well, um, in this situation, and uh, I, I, I'm only going to mention this because you mentioned it to me, and I hope it doesn't stir up too much, but you actually gave a student a ride to and from school, Correct. Correct, yeah. Yeah, a 12-year-old girl, and, and she was involved in well, that. She shooting. wasn't 12. She was older than that. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. Uh, no. That's okay. <laughs> My memory ain't. She's probably <laughs> listening and laughing right now. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I hope she is, honestly. She is, because she's, she's a survivor. Yeah. And uh, thank goodness, and a very, very close friend. I have been neighbors with her parents for 30-plus years, and this young lady rode to work with me every day. And at that moment of the shooting, it was uh, goodbye. I, I'm not going to say her name, but we'll just call her M. Goodbye, M. I'll I'll see you after school. And she turned and walked right into the cafeteria, and I turned to, to unlock my door. And uh, that's when uh, the whole ruckus happened. Um, like I said, being locked, being locked into a cafeteria with. Uh, with gunshot victims, um, you know, you want to help. You want to. You want to uh, be there to help kids compress their wounds. And during that time, that's when I saw Melissa. Oh, excuse me. That's, okay. that's all right. <laughs> and I saw M, and uh, she had been shot. I just can't. I don't think anybody can imagine the feel of that unless you actually were involved in it. Yeah, it's staggering to me. It's staggering to me that we're still arguing over this situation of school shootings. I, I simply can't believe it. Nor can I. Yeah. It's, Nor can I. 387 <laughs> shooting school shootings later. Yeah. And counting. Uh, yeah, there's obviously something that has to be done. So I think a, a lot of people listen to the stories about school shootings, but... I can understand why the people in Uvalde and other shootings are so outraged. And I'm sure you saw that same outrage even at that time in the Springfield, Eugene area. Yeah, sure. The community came together uh, in a protest. Students came together, especially in a protest. Uh, memorials were built. There was a media circus. Um, you know, uh, President Clinton came to our school just days after the shooting. We had personalities from the trailblazers from the portland trailblazers come to our school the community pulled together immediately and uh, yes there was a lot of outrage and concern and sorrow and all those other emotions that are going to come along with it yeah sadly i think far too many politicians talk about their thoughts and prayers and i actually watched greg popovic's last night who's a coach for the San Antonio Spurs, give quite a dissertation. I'm not going to go into that dissertation, but it's well worth listening to. You can find it on YouTube. But that's just almost a surface level of the anger and pent-up frustration that I think everybody in our society feels. 
Um, well, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Um, you know, uh, so much more can be done. You know, this uh, the shooter in, in our in my instance, the shooter had the obvious signs of, of gun violence. Um, the shooter was known to be killing animals. Had a healthy obsession for gun guns. And in fact, the day before the shooting, he was arrested at school with a stolen handgun that he had stole from another student's family, one of his friends. There was obvious signs. You know, at the time, we weren't really too uh, hip on how we handled gun violence back then. So he was released to his parents. That evening, he killed both of his parents. And he spent the evening in his home with his deceased parents before coming to school to commit this horrible crime. Honestly, it sounds unimaginable. It does, but it was preventable. It was preventable. Back then, you know, we, we didn't, there wasn't as many school shootings. This is something that was totally unexpected, right? Yeah, as I remember, there wasn't much of a movement to register guns till fairly recently, and it's met with huge resistance. Right, but you know, that was during a time when we had an assault weapon ban, and thank goodness that we had it then because this young man came in with a semi-automatic twenty two and a semi-automatic thirty-eight pistol. So the twenty-two was the Ruger 1022. It's real popular, plinker. And uh, thank goodness it was not a high-caliber assault weapon or we would have had maybe 26 deaths. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think ultimately that leads us into that discussion. You know, who really needs an assault weapon? They're made to kill. Well, they yeah, are. They're, that's what they're... They're a weapon of war. And I can see it to some degree in police work because at this point the police are so outgunned you know you don't want to be facing someone with a handgun that has an assault rifle right so as you have watched this all go on i know that part of what prompted you to talk to us today is some of the more recent shootings i'm sure with your background this has got to make you angry and i think a lot of americans are angry and i think it's okay to be angry <laughs> <laughs> well it does make me angry and you know um Briefly on the my experience with school shootings created a what what I consider going to be a lifetime anxiety situation for me, and uh, gosh, I'm get, getting a little off track here. But um, no, you you are you're covering the subject well. It's I think it leaves everybody stuttering. You know, when I see John Stewart stutter over the idea that everybody should be angry, you know, I think we all feel kind of tongue tied at this point. Why can't something be done? <laughs> Why can't something be done? We've been desensitized by the media. We have people like Alex Jones out there that's spouting. <laughs> oh, my God. I, I can't even begin to, to uh, talk about that, you know, um, that uh, somebody would deny a school shooting. I mean, I just, I, I just feel like, uh, you know, these uh, politicians and media characters that are desensitizing all of us to trying to desensitize us to school shootings they just never been there yeah not that they need to excuse me that was a bad choice of words they don't know what it's like they don't know the horror they don't know the terror of having to compress a wound on a student they don't know yeah they don't they don't talk to the parents that have that have had this sort of stuff happen to their children and hopefully they won't be a parent that has it happen to their children. Well, it is what makes me angry is that they, they can deny um, 
they can deny this uh yeah it's such a uh, a difficult situation and it's amazing to me that no matter how hard we try somebody tries to step in and stumble the effort and you know now it's becoming more and more apparent and i'm glad that people like you are willing to talk about it as a first hand eyewitness man that's something i think something that was even more interesting that i found out this weekend when i talked to your sister is that she had some connection to the columbine shooting can you recall what that connection was well she was a she lived there yeah yeah she lived in the area and uh, i don't i don't know what her connection was no if she had a direct connection yeah, if if she told me, I forgot it by now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. I was going to say I found it quite interesting, and I think that's another facet of your life. Is I got an opportunity to talk to your sister. I think that being an educator really does shape the way people think about other people. Well, uh, ed- educators have a special feeling towards students. That's why we're there. You know. Yeah. Well, Kevin, have we covered pretty much everything you want to talk about? I want to make sure that if there's anything that you'd like to say, I, you get a chance to say it. You know, there is. I hunt, and I have a gun. I have a rifle. I even have a personal protection handgun. There's no need for assault rifles. I just don't, uh, even as, as a hunter, I cannot support the interpretation of the Second Amendment that is going on in this country right now. Because it's exactly what it is. It's interpretation. You can interpret it just about any way you want to, but that is not what our founding fathers meant in the 18th century. You cannot compare that to 21st century values. Going by some thought, it would be legal to own a bazooka, just a firearm, you know, but, and I think that that's another aspect that I'm sure our listeners are well aware of, but there's a big difference between hunting ammunition and an assault rifle bullet. And you made that comment earlier, and I just want to restate that and make sure that everybody's aware of the fact that those military grade bullets do a lot more damage than a 22. Absolutely. Absolutely. The caliber of the bullet. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, visually, you can see the difference in the size. So Yeah, it's a shame that we have to develop those weapons of war and then that they've been so widely distributed. You know, because I am uh, so close to you, I want to thank you for coming and sharing your story and your thoughts on this issue, because this is the issue. We have to stop the level of mental illness that has kind of invaded our entire culture. And I'm sure you'd agree with that. I do. And it's time to take action on it. Thanks to Kevin Hillman for coming in and talking about a terribly difficult subject. And like I say, I don't think anybody really understands it until they've seen it and had hands-on. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and our program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.